0: It is almost time for the holidays, but don't check out for vacation just yet, listeners. We still have some adrenaline-boosting headlines happening this week, with tax reform taking over the mainstream media and New York Ed Tech Week wrapping up our conference events this year. There's a lot to talk about, which is a good thing that our guest on the podcast today, Ms. Jeannie Allen from the Center for Education Reform, has some insights on both topics. Welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm your co-host, Jenny Abamu, and happy holidays. This year, Americans seem to be watching government processes closer than they have in the past. Every week, some policymaker, some legislative vote, or confirmation hearing is trending on Twitter and Facebook. However, our guest today, Jeannie Allen, founder of the Center for Education Reform, has been closely monitoring and evaluating education policy for over 30 years. Yes, she is no rookie. As a staunch education reformist pushing the school choice movement forward, Allen is no friend to teachers unions and school board associations, saying that they maintain the status quo or change a little too slowly for her taste. But today, we'll talk about the changes that she is seeing in public schools, covering everything from taxes to policy, and how those changes are impacting education technology, We'll also try to get her to give us a sneak peek about what she's expecting from New York City's big EdTech conference this year. Miss Allen, welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. Hi, Jenny. My pleasure. This week is New York EdTech Week, where educators, academic researchers, and other company heads will gather in the Big Apple to wrap up the year. What are your expectations for this year's events? I know you spoke last year, and you're speaking again this year. How have things evolved, and where is the discussion about edtech in New York City moving?
1: Well, and it's an exciting week. You know, I actually uh, am pl- uh, pleased to be on the ground floor of the Start Ed Accelerator which is the uh, co-sponsor of this event uh, under the auspices of NYU Steinhardt also. And so, you know, the work at the Accelerator and the work really of New York Ed Tech Week is to bring together the best minds and most cutting-edge technologies to address all the various challenges and opportunities that we face in education today. And so what I suspect will happen is much like last year, it's, uh, you know, part speed date, part brokering and connecting with people who can help you solve, uh, your biggest pain points if you happen to be in education or if you happen to be in ed tech, uh, schools and school leaders who can so- serve as your, uh, echo uh, chamber or your proof point for whether what you're doing can happen. And uh, mixed with a bunch of investors walking around looking for the next uh, greatest uh, idea, you know, a la Twitter or something like that. And so it's dynamic, and interesting, and lots of people converging who've never had a chance to meet yet. And so that's what makes it particularly exciting. And I who's on the board of Star Ed, what are you seeing in the New York City edtech scene kind of evolving? Well, you know, it's interesting. We like to say it's actually, you know, New York is kind of the um, the location, almost like you know, people talk about Silicon Valley as being, you know, the the really cutting edge technology, um, you know, place and location. But really, New York New York encompasses a much more global. Uh, they won't like to hear me say this. I mean, they're both global, but New York <laughs> has this sort of very global view. Because I'm involved with, you know, global Silicon Valley advisors as well, and and their um, incubator, and there's just some great work going on from coast to coast. But New York is really magical and special for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, you've got um, you know, a lot of your financiers, investors there as well. You have people from all over the world coming through. You've got your, some of your best universities in the world, including NYU. And you have your largest school systems um, right, mm-hmm. right there and right nearby. And so um, it really is this great ecosystem. And so what we see coming out of not just New York, the Accelerator, people from all over the world. Who are, incubi- you know, who, are, who are building um, and accelerating their big ideas there, you know, what we really see is people trying to solve, um, again, kind of, kind of augment and solve some of the biggest issues uh, facing educators. For example, we have um, a company working on how to make you know, reading logs and reading uh, much more accessible for students and allow parents and teachers to track their reading in real time. Uh, We have folks doing phenomenal stuff with math education. We have someone doing virtual reality uh, and really bringing that to life for students. We have uh, a company that's um, really turning, uh, you know, hoping to turn girls on much more with science and technology by helping Mm -hmm. them create their own maker sites And uh, and so there's a variety of things that they're showing us can and should be done throughout education, whether it be in pre-K, through 12, through higher ed, or just external from the classroom.
0: So speaking of large school districts, you are a staunch advocate for school choice. And you've made comments multiple times saying, Washington, you've got to loosen the regulations on districts so they're able to provide options for parents. Now, I'm just going to kind of pivot away from that conversation a little bit and just say, if Washington does loosen regulations on alternative school models, the onus may fall on parents to hold these schools accountable. I've done a few stories on this in the past, and this is kind of a conclusion that some researchers have, re- have came to come to. So how can school districts and policymakers prepare and empower parents to be able to be the ones to hold schools accountable if Washington chooses to you know, loosen the reins a bit?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think there's a couple of there's a couple of things happening. I mean, first of all, you know, innovation can uh, can occur uh, is able to occur anywhere, um, and part of what we've learned though through the uh, you know some 26 years of the public charter schooling uh, movement, as well as through other kind of school choice uh, you know efforts is that to really be able to push the envelope, to be nimble, to be flexible, you need to be loosened up from many of the strings that have tended Mm. to tie people's hands. You know, some of those strings are real. Uh, They come from uh, some small line in federal law that turns into a regulation, that turns into a rule, that turns into habit. Some of them Mm. are just habitual. We thought that this is the way we had had to teach science. We thought this is the way we had to structure our class. Um, And some of them are just because we've not really given um, or invited educators who could be incredibly creative to dare to dream, to recast the way they see education. And a lot of it is because we are measuring a couple or one or two fixed points in time to see how well they're doing. And so, you know, education doesn't tend to be a risk venture. It doesn't tend to be someplace where um, you have lots of time for people to iterate and provide mm-hmm. feedback. And so, more flexibility we have learned in the charter school world as well as through higher education allows people to really be able to develop and implement many of the new tools and services uh, without having to worry about whether or not they're uh, violating some uh, real or perceived law or rule. And so, what we've said mm-hmm. to the federal government as well as many state governments, but feds could start, is look, even though you're not responsible, for 100% of the money, in fact, you're only responsible for about 10%, you're probably responsible for a lot of behaviors happening because uh, you wield such a heavy stick. So why Mm -hmm. don't you loosen a lot of those rules and regulations, some of them guidance, and let people Mm -hmm. understand, even if it's already the case, let them understand that they have much more wide latitude than they might normally think. And sometimes Mm -hmm. just by doing that, um, you tend to release people from uh, some fear that uh, a federal bureaucrat or someone in the state is going to pick up the phone and say, no, that's not how you were supposed to spend that money or you're in violation hmm. of XYZ title.
0: Hmm. You bring up some really interesting points. Can you give me an example of a specific regulation that you've seen that's kind of uh, hampered people from innovating, something that you've, you're you able to identify and say, this this policy... This regulation is what is something that's really hampered uh, innovation.
1: Yeah, so combination of regulation and guidance, uh, let's talk about teacher develop- professional development, right? So mm-hmm. there's, um, there's money for professional development at the federal level, and mm-hmm. um, oftentimes when uh, those monies are allocated, uh, there are some specific uses of funding that are actually mm-hmm. enumerated in law And then regulators go further and say the practice of uh, funding professional development must include the following things, even if the following things weren't actually in the law. And that's the first mistake, right? And Mm -hmm. And then what will happen is a school district will call up, let's say New York City, since we're talking from New York City, New York City will call up and say, hey, there's a program that, you know, there's a company that walked in, they do it online or they do it, you know... Uh, outside Mm. the classroom, or we don't really want to spend an extra day. We want to do it this way. Or maybe we just want to actually use the money to develop it ourselves. And then the feds Mm. will say, hmm, based on my reading of the Federal Regulation 1234, you're not allowed to do that. And then they'll issue guidance saying, based on our guidance that we told New York City this, we want to tell everybody else that. And that right Mm. away squashes the the interest or proclivity of that school, that school district, to do something different. Now, in a case when you have a really reform-minded superintendent or very innovator, they're going to push back. Mm -hmm. They're going to say, no, 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 that's not true. Get me on the phone with so-and-so, right? And then it Mm -hmm. becomes an enterprise of, like, negotiating and horse trading. But most of the time, it's not that innovative superintendent that's doing it. It's the person in charge of professional development, and they don't want to violate what they believe is a, you know verified law and mm-hmm. so that becomes a different habit we've seen this actually to be honest even though it's a very small program in the public charter school grant program this is a startup program created in 97 reauthorized mm-hmm. successively bipartisan from there um, it was very simple let's fund um, startup states will apply they'll get money states will distribute the money we'll leave it up to the states how those monies get distributed And over the last several years, lots of strings have been attached to that program that aren't enumerated in law, constraining how even these innovative charter schools are allowed to spend money and operate. And so those are just a couple of things, bigger programs Mm -hmm. like Title I about remedial education. Look, inner city school districts, urban school districts, rural school districts that have poor and disadvantaged kids will spend any way they can to educate those kids, but oftentimes Mm -hmm. They're looking for one specific thing that can address mm-hmm. um the way that they're spending money, and um mm-hmm. you they don't feel like they can often combine or repurpose funds if they happen to have a different mm-hmm. need.
0: Fascinating, so just going back to the first question, kind of thinking, okay, so let's say Washington removes some regulations because they're in the position to be able to do that, right, especially with this administration, Betsy DeVos, who's really saying. I want to sit down, step back, and allow districts to do what they want to do. And when this begins to happen, I'm going to go back to the question I asked earlier. How can districts and policymakers empower parents to be able to make the education decisions that are best for their children?
1: Well, you know, I also want to, before, before I say something about sort of parents and how school districts can empower parents, I also want to point out mm-hmm. that under, under the Obama administration, I mean, some of the same demands and suggestions for um, flexibility were actually coming out of the Obama administration. Richard Collada, for example, was the head of, you know, technology services. I can't remember, and I apologize if Richard listens to this for not getting his, <laughs> getting his name wrong. But essentially, or his title wrong, but he was in Office charge of, of helping to, mm-hmm. Office of Educational Technology, that's right, he was the director. Mm-hmm. And he would say to folks, look, you are allowed to um, to push the envelope on this. I mean, you can combine mm-hmm. your technology funds with your reading funds, with your professional development funds. He would actually, mm-hmm. he created a roadmap for districts, and many of them followed it and used it. And others, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know. Did they ignore it? Did they not use it? Did they not understand it? But we, you know, it's, it's like any... Any information. Sometimes you have to complete, continue to beat it in people's heads that they can do certain mm-hmm. things, uh, even when they don't believe that they can. And so uh, I think that the push and the call for flexibility is very widespread. It's very tripartisan, I say. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not quite as radical in the previous administration as this one in wanting to uh, release strings. For example, um, the interest by the secretary to boss in loosening up some of the restrictions on special education is causing the special education uh, industry, if you will, to push back in fear that those monies aren't going to be spent well. The reality is uh, we've not beaten the challenge to special education, and it's critical that we allow um, school districts and leaders to figure out maybe new ways to address it. And so um, that's just another example. But, you know, on to parents. Look, information is truly power. We've seen this over and over again. When there's transparency, lots of information, and lots of understanding, parents can tend to be more informed consumers But look, to Mm -hmm. be an informed consumer, you need to do more than be able to show up at one school to which you were assigned. I mean, that's why we're Mm -hmm. huge fans of of more freedom and flexibility in the system. It's great if parents know what's happening that might be new so they can embrace it, understand it, and help their child. So lots of information home, lots of parent engagement tools, by the way, in the ed tech space are out there to help parents navigate school systems. Um, And that's an important dimension. But at the end of the day, if you've got some choice, parents in New York City are allowed to choose schools and students can, lots of different districts, some have charter schools, there's lots of different kinds of opportunities to engage, you need information. You need to be able to find it quickly on a website. You need to be able to have a person you can call. You need to be able to wait, compare um, whether this mm-hmm. works for my child better, how, what kind of questions you need to ask. These are things that, by the way, traditionally districts are not good at informing parents about how to be active, actively engaged. That's not really their strength. Um, They're managing a a highly regulated, complex, centralized environment. And so we really Mm -hmm. rely on intermediary organizations to arm and abet parents, to push and shove, to to demand um, things that
0: best fit their kids. It'll definitely be interesting to see how those intermediary organizations who are helping parents choose uh, the right school for their kids evolve with policy. Now, before we wrap up, I want to talk to you about taxes. You wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times in response to Congress's proposed tax plan offering up to $30,000 in tax breaks for families who send their students to private schools. In the letter, you suggest offering breaks for donations to nonprofit organizations that help build job skills that you say would be really useful. What other ways can the tax code be used to improve access to quality education for all families? And how could your suggestion impact EdTech?
1: Yeah, so so we really, you know, look, there's a right now there's a 529 that's going to be offered to parents to expand 529s to K-12, and that will help. Savings that will help parents be able to allocate different dollars for their kids' education, uh, particularly those who can afford to put that money away. And that's fine. It's, tax, it's, uh, it's an element of tax reform. It helps create some more opportunities for parents. But to us, it doesn't address the fundamental changes that are needed in the education landscape. And so what we had advocated for is having a much more broad Concept of a tax credit, a credit that could do exactly what Congress is trying to do, which is put more money back in the pockets of, you know, individuals and companies, but by putting money, some money back in their pockets, by giving them an incentive to contribute to organizations that provide scholarships for everything from education to training to workforce development. So imagine being able to have a company rather than contributing money for a stadium or contributing money for a school to buy a program or contributing just directly to anything in a school. Instead, contributing to a pot of money where a student, maybe an adult learner, shows up and says, I really want to learn this particular skill, or I want to go back to college, or I want to find a way to get trained for a new industry, or my kids need a better education and there's only a private school available. Imagine having a scholarship granting organization that is helping direct people to institutions that are truly embracing and supporting their needs that would help develop not only a marketplace for really good ideas and new institutions but it would reinforce this notion that people should be looking for the best offerings for their kids which allows them to truly fit their uh, the school to their students as opposed to students to their school and so we were hoping that would be in the tax bill. It didn't make it, mm-hmm. but we still think that tax, tax reform could, in fact, or some element of tax reform could, in fact, help us spur the creation of new opportunities for learners at all levels.
0: Excellent. Well, I have one final question. What other education policies would you say, in about 30 seconds, should people be paying attention to that could possibly impact them?
1: Well, I think probably the most important one right now that's really hot uh, is the reauthorization of the Higher Ed Act. Um, that's what Congress is currently working on. Um, a bill was introduced um, just recently uh, to create um, more innovation in higher ed. I think probably the biggest issue for higher ed, uh, the biggest change, even though it's um, uh, not the biggest policy, but it also affects all kids, all potentially all schools, is this notion of competency-based education. I mean, um, you know, there's mm. a potential for, for the first time, which I think is dramatic, for the higher education at the federal level to recognize schools that do competency-based education. Then imagine being able to show up in a college and have already had something under your belt, right? Or be mm. able to have, have um, take what you've learned and do it in a condensed way because we're focusing on mastery, and not just four years in a seat in order to get federal funds and have your school accredited. I mean, so this could be this could open up the landscape and trickle down to to uh, to K twelve, and I hope it does. We should be on a track where we are measuring students on how much they've learned and whether they've mastered things, rather than how much time that they're in a the classroom.
0: And the debate goes on. Well, thank you, Ms. Allen, for joining us for the Ed Surge On Air podcast and then informing us of everything going on with policy and uh, ed tech. You're welcome, Jenny. really enjoyed it. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jenny Abamu, and you can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsurge.com. You can also subscribe to us on your iPhone podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education.